Many do, with the quickly added qualification of seeing it from a safe place. That safety can come at the center of the storm, the eye of the hurricane. The storm swirls wildly all around, but there's a calm in the center. And God is our refuge, as Psalms reminds us repeatedly. And today's passage is a lot like that as well. I invite you to join me in Isaiah 8, 11 through 17. On either side of these verses, earlier and later in the chapter, it's like wild winds and a major storm swirling. But in these verses, we find an oasis, a safety, a respite. So we turn to Isaiah, the masterpiece of Isaiah. A couple of times this week, you've heard Jim, our director, talk about the upcoming class on Isaiah and how this book is simply a masterpiece and oh, the challenge of our professors trying to fit it all in to 20 hours of instruction. It is a literary masterpiece, a poetic masterpiece, and a lasting masterpiece. Scholars through the years have also talked about the microcosm of Isaiah or the miniature Bible that we have in Isaiah with its two major sections, much like the Old and New Testaments, with chapters 1 through 39 having overtones of judgment and Old Testament-type themes, while chapters 40 through 66 more reminiscent or previewing of the New Testament and major themes of comfort right from the first words of that section. Others look at the progression thinking in the first half about Israel's relation to Assyria, followed by how they look at Babylon in the final chapters. Some even go so far as to call this book with a little wink in their eye the gospel of Isaiah. It was the great Baptist preacher in our history, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who said he was saved by the simple preaching of Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. And the roots of the great New Testament themes, every knee will bow. And even the armor of God find themselves here in Isaiah. The book opens with a multi-layered introduction in chapters 1 through 6, climaxing with Isaiah's own calling in the holy, holy, holy vision of chapter 6. He continues by noting Judah's relation with their adversary Assyria in chapters 7 through 12. And here in chapter 8, the storm was brewing, but the Lord had safety for them. Problems surrounded God's people, highlighted in the verses before and after this, but God, then as now, had a promise for every problem. In fact, in this section, he frames the solution in terms of two births. Isaiah's son in this chapter, given a prophetic name, 
and of course, God's own Son in the next. What we see, the famed words of chapter 9. And Isaiah powerfully pounds out the theme of trust in God and not in man. In that day, the Lord alone will be exalted, he repeatedly exclaims. Why worry about man whose breath is in his nostrils? He makes reference. And he teaches us this, to see present circumstances in light of eternal realities and the coming promises. And so we see this in Isaiah 8, 11 through 17. For this is what the Lord said to me with great power, to keep me from going the way of this people. Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. He will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over these. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony, seal up the instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. Verse 11 starts with this strong thought. This is the Lord's word to prevent us from getting off the path. So gracious of him to give us fuel for the fire, to to give us a way around that. It's a constant concern. It was Demas' experience in 2 Timothy 4.10. Having loved the world, he fled from the Lord. It's James' alert as he closes his epistle in its final verses, warning us about those wandering from the way and the need to bring them back. It was certainly Paul's concern. At the end of 1 Corinthians 9, where he said, Lest I be disqualified. I don't want to do something that would mar or ruin the ministry God has given to me. And it fits with Isaiah's own later directive in the book, chapter 30 and verse 21. This is the path. Walk in it. As pastors, shepherds, this is one of our biggest responsibilities to constantly bring people back to the path to prevent them from getting off the path. We would love to be known for our deep scriptural insights or how we explore and discover just that nuance of the Hebrew or Greek term. But what our people tend to remember us for the best is he kept me on the path. He told me to have the right daily habits. He marched me in the way I should go and made sure I stayed there. This verse does that. And it's this, stay on track by staying in awe of God, our theme this week. And then we see two traits of our awe of God. The first, in verses 11 through 15, is that this is exclusive. 
As Psalm 19 says, the fear of the Lord, good working synonym for awe of God, the fear of the Lord is clean. It's a different kind of fear. And this comes first. It is fundamental, it is primary, that we live in fear of God, that we have an awe of God. Verse 12 quickly adds this, don't follow the fears of the world. Don't fear what they fear. King Ahaz and the people of Judah were surrounded by fears. Israel, Syria, conspiratorial attacks, impending doom. They would even place trust in Assyria, their worst enemy at this time. We've talked already about how fear can lead us to some dark places some illogical, nonsensible decisions. Judah was certainly doing that here. We're tempted to trust other things, which always looks ridiculous. Certainly in the long run, and if we're looking at things correctly, even in the immediate. Don't fear what the world fears. It makes us do funny things counterproductive things, destructive things. This chapter stands as one of the most stunning examples of that. So they were surrounded by fears, and we're surrounded by fears. It seems every side on which we turn, somebody is telling us to worry about something. We're running out of everything. We've got foreign foes, we've got domestic woes, we've got the air, the food, the everything around us is wrong. It seems you can't take a step without some kind of resistance or someone telling you to worry about something or many things. You know, we speak often about loving what God loves and hating what God hates, and I find scriptural warrant in Psalm 97. You could also throw in there, though, to be dispassionate about what God is dispassionate about. About sharing his indifference. About recognizing what's not a big deal. Not fearing what the world fears. Don't get excited about what doesn't excite God. Don't fear what he hasn't meant for us to fear. And so this passage begins with that first and most fundamental command, the one that appears more frequently than any other in all of Scripture, the one that we need to hear repeatedly in our daily lives and take to heart, don't fear. Fear not. Don't be afraid. All these ways that it's worded in Scripture. Because fear has a stifling power. It will freeze you in your place or it will run you into a dark place. It will keep us from doing what we know is right and can take us down many wrong roads. So treat it as the enemy that it is. Recognize it for what it is and remove it, erase it, eradicate it. Get rid of fear because fear has followers. It isn't isolated. It leads to other things, doubt and sin. 
Have you ever seen that list in Revelation 21 after the happy verses of 1 through 7 about heaven? It speaks in verse 8 about the lake of fire. It's this long list, eight characteristics of those who are there. It's all the things you would expect to see. It's the deepest, darkest of sins. But you know what the first one on the list is? The cowardly are there. This fear taken to its extreme. That's the first thing on the list. Then, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their place in the second death. Fear roots down and sprouts up many evil attitudes and foul actions. There's a verse that has been, it's just meant so much to so many all through the two millenniums since it was written. And it's been mentioned in our conference already. 2 Timothy 1.7 God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Such an important verse. Hey, do you ever do this in your church? Have a verse of the year? I would always spend this part of the year, late summer, early fall, preparing the next year's theme verse and really making the church calendar go around that and would think very deeply and pray at length about it. And I can remember doing this in late 2000 and landing on that verse, 2 Timothy 1.7. And we were downstate at the time in the New York metro area and landed on that verse not knowing that in the year 2001, on September 11th, we'd have the fearful day of all that we still remember nearly a quarter century later. And it seemed in those desperate days that every time he turned around, somebody was quoting that verse. God's not given us the spirit of fear. And that verse helped us, strengthened us, and led us through a time where every time you turn around, there's a funeral for another fireman, or we're dedicating another field in memory of someone who passed at that time. And what sticks out in that verse is that It's not two things, right? It's not God hasn't given us fear. He's instead given us this other thing. It takes three things to counteract fear, not simply one. There's power and love and a sound mind. And we need a steady diet, a healthy contribution of each of those three things to counteract the one thing of fear. Power is the volitional opposite, the active opposite. Fear tends to freeze us. Power is what gets us going or motivates us. We all love the original word for this in the Bible's Greek language because it's come right into our English as dynamite, the word dunamis, the idea of inherent power that explodes outwardly. And just as this verse came to mean a lot in our first church downstate, it also came to mean a lot in our second church upstate in the Binghamton area because we had the traffic or nightmare or the construction project to end all construction projects 10 years 
of Kamikaze Curve being made over. And every time you go down, there's a new part to the project, but a big part of the project was dynamite. And that is we would go down into Binghamton and there would be a sign that would say, blasting today. So we thought, oh, I guess traffic's gonna be rerouted. No, just know that they're gonna be blasting things, right, 10 feet to the right of you. Uh, there's gonna be all these explosions every day. Okay, we'll do that and drive kind of quickly through that area. But that's the power of dynamite, it can take what is stubbornly lodged, it can move a mountain. The power of God does that and then some. We're pretty impressed that they moved a mountain in Binghamton. They used it for fill under the new bridge in other places and they changed the whole lay of the land in a major way. I'm impressed that man can do that. Faith can move mountains, Christ talked about that. But God goes further, he can move men, and only he can do that. And this is a great reminder of that. The power of the Lord can help us overcome fear because we realize he can move not only mountains, we've found ways to do that, but he can move men, he can change hearts, he can make a difference in them. One of our pastors reached out a few years back and he said, boy, you just got to pray for this situation we have. My wife's dad is not saved, he's getting older, and to be honest, he's only getting further away. It's to the point where he stops us before we even start to witness. He sees it coming. You got to pray. And so I did. And you know, one night I came home from church, and as I opened the door, the phone was ringing. Remember when we had phones on the wall? And I ran in, and it was him. And he was hardly able to speak. He said, I don't know how to say this, but it, it happened. He got saved. We've been praying. And this mountain of a man, who actually lived up in the mountains all his life, he was this type of a guy. God broke through with his power. People had witnessed till they were blue in the face. People had been patient with him. But it took the power of God to change a heart. Power overcomes fear. Love overcomes fear. Now we're talking about the emotional opposite. Love is not only an emotion, but it certainly can have a degree of that as well. You know, 1 John 4 makes the case that there's really two motivations, right? Not to overly simplify it, but there's two reasons we do everything we do or don't do everything that we don't do, and it's fear or love. And while we would like to think that love simply needs to win out over fear, like we've got to be a little bit more than 50% love and a little bit less than 50% fear, the case is made in Scripture that it's not that at all. It's one or the other is going to dominate. One will drive out the other. And so in relating to people in particular, we want to be known by love. Approaching them in love. And then third, sound-mindedness is the intellectual opposite of fear, the mental opposite. It's a special word used only here in all of the Bible, and it focuses on clear, healthy thinking. Among the biggest challenges we all face as pastors is the increased need for counseling. 
So many people finding themselves in situations where they simply don't know what to do. They're not even sure about their next step. Overwhelmed by circumstances, they look for direction and just ask, what do I do? Well, sometimes the reason that any of us as believers can get into the situation we find ourselves so far removed where we should be is that somewhere along the way, we almost knew we were doing it at the time, but we willingly crossed a line and believed something that we knew not to be true. And the problem with doing that is you can't just simply step back quickly. You open a door to all kinds of wrong thinking. Everything can become clouded. So we need sound-mindedness, clear thinking, truthful thinking, Philippians 4.8 thinking, those things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy. We don't fear what the world fears. Instead, Isaiah turns the tables in verse 13 as he quotes the Lord, live in fear of the Lord. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. Both Hebrew words reference fear. The first in the direction of reverence and respect. The second toward trembling, the idea of an actual physical response. If you're going to live in fear, live in fear of the Lord. If you're going to shake in your shoes, then take off your shoes on holy ground and recognize God's presence. Our ultimate reactions from the highest of our emotions to the depths of our souls should be reserved for the Lord. That's what should move our feet or make us tick or inspire our greatest passions. This distinct fear differs from all others. The fear of the Lord is clean and endures forever. Verse 13 stands as a theme verse, really, for this section and a solid summary of Scripture's overall teaching on awe or fear of God. To fear God first. To fear God only. 1 Samuel 12, 24, only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. Or Deuteronomy 10, 12, what does the Lord require of you? And it makes the list, starting with this, to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep His commands. Or Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God first. Fear God only. And, as Pastor Mark pointed out so well last night, every time God says, fear not, he quickly adds, why not? He gives us reasons, and those reasons are entirely wrapped up in him. This is so important because the two opposing reactions of verses 12 and 13, whether we fear what others fear or whether we fear the Lord, 
play into the opposite experiences of verses 14 and 15. Whether we see him as a sanctuary, our sacred, safe place, or whether we see him as our stumbling stone. Living in fear can turn us against him and make him that. The Apostle Peter quotes this in 1 Peter 2. And as for us leaders, the Gospel of Mark, influenced by Peter, illustrates it well. You remember this story, Mark 3, 1 through 6? Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand. It's miraculous. It's merciful. It's nothing but good. And everybody there knew exactly what had just happened. They watched a shriveled hand grow larger. They knew who he was. But how would they respond? The story ends with this ironic twist that the Pharisees started plotting with the Herodians, not a natural partnership at all, to kill Jesus. Live your life so that when Jesus arrives, you're waiting for that. You're welcoming it. It's, ah, relaxing to you. Not resenting and refusing on your part, like the part of the Pharisees. It can make all the difference between healing and between wanting to oppose Christ. There's an error that comes so naturally to us, yet grieves so deeply the heart of God, unbelief. We've refused to believe that God will keep his promises. This ran rampant in Judah at this time. God would promise and they wouldn't believe. God would offer a sign and they wouldn't take it. And he would have to himself give the sign. we can doubt we can despair we can convince ourselves that it's too good to be true that God won't come through instead we need to be ready some of you go back a few years in our fellowship and can remember we're very honored to have Craig and Shirley Golden with us today and you would write us monthly letters And they would cover all sorts of good territory, current events, helpful illustrations. And I remember this one. There's a story that you shared with us about a tourist who went into the beautiful hills of northern Italy. He was wandering around, and something caught his attention, a beautiful castle. He was so curious that he pushed the gate open, and he entered. Everything was beautiful. And there was a gardener there. He was clipping individual blades of grass. He had the flowers blooming. The shrubbery was magnificent. Everything was luxuriously green. So this man said to the gardener, may I come in and take a look? The gardener responded, come right in. You're very welcome. I'm happy to have a guest. So the man looked around and said, who owns this place? And he named the owner. He said, does he live here now? Oh no, he's away. Does he come here often? Oh no. When's the last time you have seen him? Twelve years ago. 
12 years, this place is empty? Yes. Who tells you what to do? He has an agent in Milan who sends instructions. Do you ever see him? No, he just sends the instructions. So he's still clipping and pruning and trimming and going about his work. And finally the man said, well, you've got everything so beautiful, it looks like you were expecting him tomorrow. He responded, today, sir, today. So many of the parables in the Gospels feature that sentiment. Be ready. Almost the idea of we're anticipating it and desiring it so much, be disappointed if it doesn't happen rather than relieved that it doesn't. Give exclusive fear. This is the one time you can put all your eggs in one basket, fully rely on the Lord. We come to a second trait of our awe of God, and that is that it's extensive in verses 16 and 17. Not only is the fear of the Lord clean, but it endures forever. These verses talk about that. Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Here we talk about perpetuating the word and the work of God. Make your awe of God contagious to others and continual for yourself. Write it down and pass it down, as verse 16 says. Writing in Isaiah's time, and the whole biblical period, wasn't easy. The New Testament was completed not long before the invention of paper. They didn't have that, certainly didn't have scrap paper. If they're going to write something down, it took effort and expense. We're almost back to that these days, aren't we? <laughs> Put something on actual paper and write it down. Everything is done digitally. Getting to be that way again. Something handwritten can be kind of rare. But the idea is we get this message out there in writing, in speaking, in attitude. We've just come through our Renew Women's Conference where that was the whole theme. How can you write to the glory of God? What can you put into words to share with others? Who can I inspire? Who can I influence toward the cause of Christ? Perpetuate. And as verse 17 adds, perpetuate with patience. We hold on to the one who holds us. Verse 17 talks about, I will wait for him. I will hope in him. It's a great testimony on Isaiah's part. Though I'm not seeing what I want to see, I'm still holding on. Though I don't have the rewards Instantly, or even after a significant period of waiting, I'll stay faithful and wait and not insist on it now. Verse 17 uses two words to describe it. The first, the idea of I will wait, is stickiness, adhering, gluing myself to the Lord. It's not a loose connection, it's a a holding on, a waiting. And then the second word, it's one of my favorite Hebrew words, it originally meant rope. It came to mean, etymologically, hope. 
What in the world is in common between rope and hope other than that they rhyme in English? Well, each gives you something to hold on to in one sense, but more to the point, rope is braided and weaved together and becomes something strong. And our hope in the Lord is like that. It's tested, it's tried, we weave it, we braid it, we make it the threefold cord that is not quickly broken. Isaiah vowed to fully trust with his life and the life to come. He vowed to trust if no one else did. He vowed to trust if it seemed that God was in hiding. When we give God first place, everything else falls into place. When we persevere, he sees to it that it pays off. And he who endures to the end will be saved. We can find the calm even during the storm. We talk about the calm before or the calm after. But with the Lord, there's a calm during the storm when we make him our most motivating factor. May we live and walk in the fear and the awe of God. Thank you, Lord, for the sacred text. It's yours in that you breathed it out, and it's ours in that we can use it for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for ourselves, for others, for our individual lives, for our churches to move together corporately. Thank you for your powerful word. May we truly live in awe of you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So as we get ready to sing the final song for the conference, um, I just want to share something really quickly. So um, my uncle, my great uncle, he passed away last Monday. Um, he was 53 years old. He had this really rare cancer. Uh, there's only like four other cases in the U.S. of. And um, so he was 53, and his last words were, um, he was a believer, by the way. He said, I'm tired. I want to go home. I have to go upstairs. And then he passed away quickly after that. And I just admire that because he wasn't afraid of what was next because he knew that he was going to be with the Lord. And um, we never know which moment is going to be our last. And I just want to live my life that way, just to know that one day we will see his face. That's an amazing thing to look forward to. So as we sing this next, as we sing this next song, um, just be reminded that this is not the end.